The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The title of our sermon this morning is Dead to Sin, Alive to God. I've repeated that sermon title now three times because this is part three. Part three in this brief text, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And uh, this is already our third sermon now in this brief text. And we're moving fast for a reason. Um, <laughs> we, are, we are laying groundwork in this text, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, that is foundational to uh, our understanding of the rest of the chapter. It's pivotal to not only our understanding of the rest of the chapter, but to our understanding of the Christian life. We're talking about union with Jesus Christ. And as we work through chapter 6 and into chapter 7, dealing with not only uh, sin in general, but then indwelling sin in particular, our union with Jesus Christ becomes very critical, very important to our understanding of living the Christian life and living with this reality of sin until one day the Lord calls us home and glorifies us, right? So in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, hang in there with me, right? We've got to think carefully through this text. We've got to think carefully about Paul's argument. Now, there are some things in the text that are difficult. And as we work through those things and as we meditate on those things, we need to commit them to our minds, uh, commit them to our understanding. And then we've got to ask the Spirit of God to take that that's in our minds, take that understanding and drive it into the soil of our hearts. Uh, and where that truth in the soil of our heart then will fuel and fire worship and faith and love and devotion, right? That's the way it works. We need to take this understanding and pray that the, the Spirit of God would give us uh, illumination, would apply this to us. So I want you to think with me as we take a look now at Romans chapter 6, again, verses 1 through 4. I want you to think with me now about Paul's reference to the word baptism in Romans chapter 6. The word baptism there. The word literally means to immerse. It means to plunge. Even the sometimes definition of to dip would mean to put someone under, right? To, to immerse or to plunge. Of the 119 times that the Greek noun or the Greek verb is used in the New Testament, Jesus Christ uses the word in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, to refer to the baptism of his suffering. So very rarely, but the Lord uses that to refer to the baptism of his suffering. And the word is used sparingly in reference to uh, the outpouring of the Spirit. And even in those cases, the word is being used exclusively in a religious sense to signify spiritual realities, which is what the word is intended to do. But in virtually every case that the word baptism is found in the New Testament, it's either referring to the practice of John the Baptist immersing repentance, uh, repenters in the River Jordan, or it's overwhelmingly referring to the new covenant ordinance reserved for those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. The immersion of believers in the waters of baptism. Overwhelmingly, it refers to that rite of Christianity, right? So when we encounter the word then in Romans chapter 6, we can be reasonably certain that Paul isn't simply using the word to convey that we have been immersed into Jesus Christ. He's not simply using the word in reference to our union with Jesus Christ. He certainly does intend to communicate that, 
Paul is absolutely referring here to our union with Jesus Christ, but by use of the word baptism, Paul is referring to far more than that. I pray we'll see that in our text this morning. In Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, Paul is referring to an immersion into union with Jesus Christ that has specific reference to the symbolism that is inherent in our own water baptism. Okay? Again, Paul is referring to an immersion of the believer into union with Jesus Christ, but that immersion has specific reference to the symbolism of baptism. It's something that all believers who have been biblically baptism should know to be true. Something that Paul begins verse 3 with, uh, don't you know or do you not know, right? He calls us to remember that time when we professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, when we professed that certain spiritual realities were true of us, and then we were plunged under the water and then raised in affirmation of those truths. Paul is calling us to connect these spiritual realities to our understanding of our own baptism. So an understanding of the text then is not an either-or, either referring to the Spirit's immersion of a believer into union with Christ, or referring to the water baptism of believers as a picture of that spiritual union. It's not an either-or. Paul employs a masterful and beautiful both-and. It's a both-and. Paul intends both. The last week, we labored to show that these spiritual blessings afforded us in union with Jesus Christ are not given through the instrumentality of baptism. Those spiritual blessings, we've been given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. Those blessings are not given to us through the means or through the instrumentality of baptism. What means or what instrumentality are those spiritual blessings given to us? They're given to us through the instrumentality of faith. Faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for all that he has done for us, right? Now this morning, having established that fact, and that's a fact important for us to understand from Romans chapter 6 verses 1 through 4. This morning, we want to take some time and show now that what Paul has in mind through his use of the word for baptism here is not only our union with Christ and not only our union with Christ generally, but our union with Christ particularly as signified or symbolized in the new covenant ordinance of believers' baptism. It is not just a union with Christ, but it is a union in his death. It's a union in his burial and in his resurrection. And each of these points, again, is going to be very important, very important as we continue to work through the text of Romans chapter 6. Now notice first the language that Paul uses in verses 3 and 4. Notice the language. It's spiritual language, isn't it? It's spiritual language that is signified or illustrated in the physical ordinance of baptism. Now remember, Paul's answering a question here. He's answering a question is it consistent or is it, is it congruous for a Christian who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, is it consistent for a Christian to live any longer in an unbroken or unchallenged pattern of sin in their life? Is that, can that be a reality? Is it possible that a Christian can, can continue to live in sin? And so the answer that Paul gives then is, Absolutely not. God forbid. The thought is absurd. We have 
died to sin in the Lord Jesus Christ, how can we live any longer in it? Now, the key to understanding all this is Paul's statement there that we have died to sin. What does it mean that we have died to sin? Well, Paul gives the answer with reference to our union with Christ, okay? We're answering the question, can a Christian live in sin, continue to live in sin? The answer is absolutely not. Why? Because we have been brought into vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we have been brought into vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we cannot continue to live in a continuation of, in a pattern of sin. It's impossible, it's absurd. And then Paul gives now his answer with reference to that union with Christ, and he points to baptism, baptism as an illustration or an analogy of that fact. Notice the language, verse three. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? And again, that word baptized loaded with theological significance. It does not merely mean that we were put or placed into union with Jesus Christ. It means something far more than that. It certainly means that, but it means far more. Verse four, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Now, our confession of faith, the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, our confession draws on this very same language. Chapter 29, Article 1, listen. Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with Christ. A sign of fellowship in his death and resurrection, a sign of his being engrafted or brought into union with Jesus Christ, a sign of remission of sins, and a sign of giving up into God through Jesus Christ to live and now walk in newness of life. That's a lot that's being said there. But you see all the connections with our text, don't you? Baptism is a picture of our union with Christ. Baptism, not simply union generally, but union particularly in his death, burial, resurrection, and newness of life. All of that in the text, all of that in our confession, do you see? Now, Paul uses the very same picture, the very same language in Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, a text that we looked at carefully last week. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and there it is, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, have put him on. And again, what we're doing here, what Paul is doing is referring to the symbolism that is associated with our physical baptism. He's taking physical baptism and all that physical baptism signifies, and he's associating that physical ordinance with spiritual realities that are true of the believer. After uh, being baptized or immersed underwater, just as that baptism or just as that immersion is an illustration of our immersion into Christ or an illustration of us being brought into union with Jesus Christ, so being immersed under the waters of baptism is an illustration here in Galatians chapter three of putting on Christ, putting on Christ. I want you to think about this with me for a moment, right? This idea that in baptism, being baptized into Christ by being immersed into him or showing up in the physical 
uh, symbolism of water baptism, being immersed into Christ, is putting on Christ. This is an identification. It's a union so strong. It's a union so vital, a connection so intimate, so personal, so close, so near, so all-encompassing that it is best pictured in the redeemed objects of his love being enveloped in water, (laughs) right? Being plunged under the water, being plunged into Jesus Christ, being soaked, as it were, in him. Do you see? Being immersed, such that Paul would use the language of baptism as putting on Christ. Wrapping ourselves, as it were, in a cloak. John Calvin, I love this, said this, just as Jacob did not of himself deserve the right of the firstborn, concealed in his brother's clothing and wearing his brother's coat, which gave out an agreeable odor, he ingratiated himself with his father so that to his own benefit, he received the blessing while impersonating another. You see, wrapped in the clothing, the garments of his elder brother, his firstborn brother, Jacob ingratiated himself to his father. We, in like manner, Calvin says, hide in the precious purity of our firstborn brother Christ so that we may be attested righteous in God's sight. Wrapped, soaked, as it were, submersed, immersed in the union with him. We wear him like a garment, do you see? Wrapped up in him. We are seen as righteous because he is righteous. Wrapped up in him. All of his victories become our victories. Wrapped up in him. All that he wins, he wins for us. Do you see? Glorious, right? Pictured when a believer plunges under the waters of baptism. For in order that we may appear before God's face unto salvation, Calvin says, we must smell sweetly with his odor and our vices must be covered and buried by his perfection. I love that. We have put on Christ. We are in union with him. We are clothed with him. Do you see? In the symbolism of baptism, we are immersed, soaked as it were in him. How how do you communicate that reality any more intimately? How do you communicate that truth any more beautifully, frankly, than that picture of a believer going into the water? We smell sweetly now with his odor, our vices buried in his perfection. We labored last week to prove from Scripture that that vital union that we're speaking of isn't established through baptism or given through baptism. It doesn't happen at our baptism, right? Baptism is simply illustrating, picturing, symbolizing that union. And we all can see that clearly, despite so much theology that would stand opposed to it. There's a sense in which we were identified, as we talked about last week, there's a sense in which we are identified with Jesus Christ in eternity. We're reckoned, or considered by God to be identified with Christ or in union with Christ before time began. But that vital union to which Paul now refers in Romans chapter 6 was not established at our baptism. It was established upon the moment that a believer puts faith in Jesus Christ, whereupon at that moment all of those spiritual blessings become theirs in him. 
Now, incidentally, there's another place here where this very same language of Paul is used. And I want you to see it. It's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Turn there with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Same language being used. But where it's used positively to refer to our union with Christ in Romans chapter 6, it's being used here in 1 Corinthians 10 negatively to talk about their union, the Israelites' union with Moses. I want you to see this. From a, from a positive identification with our elder brother, the Lord Jesus Christ under the new covenant, to the negative example of the Israelites identified with Moses under the old covenant, this is a negative example, if you will, of union or identification. And it's also illustrated here carefully in 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's illustrated using the language of baptism. And it really conveys the opposite of what Paul is conveying in Romans chapter 6. Okay, look at verse 1 with me. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea. That's very interesting here. Uh, Paul, think with me, Paul is speaking to a mixed congregation in Corinth, isn't he? A congregation made up of both Jews and Gentiles. Do you see? And he refers to the emancipation generation, that first generation that came out of Egypt. He refers to them as our fathers. You ever noticed that before? Why does Paul refer to them as our fathers? Because we are true descendants of Abraham by the faith of Abraham. We are the true descendants of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ. We are true Israel. Elect Jews and elect Gentiles in one body, redeemed by the blood of the, the sacrificial lamb. Do you see? Elect Jews, elect Gentiles, one body, the people of God. They are our fathers, do you see? Because we are the seed of Abraham. We are true Israel. Now, that first generation, think with me, afforded incredible privilege, incredible blessing. They were guided by the direct intervention of God as seen by the cloud during the day, as seen by the fire at night. They all passed through the Red Sea on dry ground as God stood the waters up in a heap on either side. They heard God's audible voice. They saw the thundering and the lightning from the mountain, right? They were brought through the water of salvation, as it were, in being brought through or delivered through the Red Sea. God standing the water up on either side. It was a great deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. A great deliverance. When Israel emerged safely from the Dead Sea, Pharaoh and his army were drowned in it. Right? They were delivered, verse 2. So, all of that emancipation generation, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Literally, for you that are studying Greek, it's a middle there as opposed to a passive. They all, in the middle, they got themselves baptized, right? They got themselves baptized, ace, with reference to Moses. They got themselves baptized, identified with Moses. And how? They were all united together, all identified with Moses in the old covenant. And all of that by immersion, baptism, in the cloud and immersion in the sea, so to speak. Do you see? 
This is baptism language, baptism language. They were all united together and immersed in the cloud, immersed in the sea together. Now we can't press this too far and make their baptism into Moses or with reference to Moses the same as our baptism with reference to Jesus Christ, right? Or our union with Jesus Christ. They're not united to Moses in the way that we're united to Christ. But you get the idea. And you get the idea of what Paul is talking about here. They're identified with Moses through a baptism. What is that baptism? They were baptized in the Red Sea, so to speak, and brought, raised through it safely from dry ground when Pharaoh and his army were drowned in it. They were baptized in Moses. They were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Their union or their identification with Moses is signified by the fact that they were baptized in the cloud and in the sea. Make sense? They were identified with him. Now, in fact... In fact, verse 3, all of them even ate the same spiritual food. They were given manna from heaven. Verse 4, and all drank the same spiritual drink. They all drank from water out of a rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Jesus Christ. That's fascinating. What does Paul mean by that? Moses, think with me, Moses struck a rock at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, to give them water. Do you remember? Exodus chapter 17. Moses strikes the rock. They get water out of the rock. Moses also struck a rock, didn't he? At the end of their wilderness wanderings to give them water. That's Numbers chapter 20. And out of that rock came some hot water. Moses found himself in it, right? You remember though, a rock at the beginning, a rock at the end. Now the, the Jewish interpretation of this Old Testament record is that it was the same rock. It was the same rock. That the original rock from which the water flowed then accompanied Israel or traveled with Israel in the desert. And they got water from that rock daily. Not just at the beginning and not just at the end. That's the Jewish interpretation of this, uh, this understanding, this record from the Old Testament. So Paul now, obviously aware of that Jewish interpretation. He studied uh, uh, under Gamaliel, Right? Also aware that the use of the term rock was used by Yahweh as a description of himself in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Paul transfers that title, the rock, to the Lord Jesus Christ. What is Paul saying? The Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh, right? And calls the Lord Jesus Christ the rock. He is also the true bread from heaven, John chapter 6, and the fountain of living water, from John chapter 4, and Paul sees Jesus Christ as the one accompanying and caring for Israel as they travel through the wilderness. Do you see? That's how Paul understands this text. Now yet, think with me now. For all of those spiritual blessings, for all of those spiritual privileges and benefits, eternal life does not come through the bread and the cup. Understand the connection? It doesn't come through those spiritual, um, those things that signify spiritual realities. They come through, those blessings are the spiritual realities themselves. Eternal life does not come through the bread and the cup, so to speak. So verse 5, with most of them then, God was not well pleased. Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, most of them is a dramatic understatement. There are only two. Two that came from that first generation who entered the promised land. That was Joshua and Caleb. The entire 
emancipation generation died under God's sentence of judgment. Hebrews chapter 3, they did not enter in because of unbelief. They didn't mix what they they heard with faith in Jesus Christ. They didn't have faith. A lack of faith in the rock and their corpses, literally here, littered across the wilderness. God swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. Okay? So they were identified with Moses under the covenant, but their circumcision did not save them. All of their blessings and benefits and privileges did not save them. Their resurrection from the waters of the Red Sea was not a picture of their true spiritual condition. Their deliverance to them wasn't a reminder to them. They did not remember their deliverer in whom they were to trust all truths that by contrast, the waters of baptism are meant to picture for those who follow Jesus Christ in faith. Do you see? A negative example of positive spiritual truth that's portrayed in the waters or the ordinance of baptism. Look at verse six. But rather, rather than those things being of eternal benefit to them, rather, these things instead became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. How do you think the Lord feels about sexual immorality, right? Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. How do you think the Lord feels about complaining? Now all of these things happened to them as examples for us. They were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words... Let us walk in newness of life. Let us walk in newness of life. Having been delivered, how shall we continue in sin? How shall we live any longer in it? Do you see? You see the connection. When we turned from sin to faith in Jesus Christ, we die to sin in our union with him who has died to sin for us. And that flight, our flight from our bondage in Egypt is seen as being through the water, so to speak, through the water. And when we are raised on the other side, we are raised to walk in newness of life, trusting him, remembering him who is our deliverer, trusting in him who is himself our necessary food and drink not living in sin that grace may abound, not living any longer in it, not lusting after evil things as they also lusted, no longer idolaters as were some of them, not living in sexual immorality as some of them did, not complaining against our God as they complained, but rather walking in newness of life. None of the spiritual blessings in similar fashion, none of the spiritual blessings that we have in union with Christ are given through baptism. They're all given through the instrumentality of our faith in Jesus Christ. But many of those blessings, including union with Jesus Christ, are pictured in the ordinance of baptism, aren't they? 
And Paul makes reference to those blessings when he describes us as those who were baptized into or baptized with reference to the person and work of Christ Jesus. And we're all to remember, right? We're all to remember. We're to remember our baptism. Our water baptism, that ordinance of the church ordained by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, says something about us. It conveys spiritual realities that are true of us. It says something about our profession. And so we're to remember our baptism and walk in newness of life. Now, that's the introduction. Uh, that's, a, <laughs> that's a considerable amount of introductory material. But I want you to think now. I want you to think about all of that. Think about all that that conveys, all that is wrapped into that. And I want you to consider all of that truth now, as you read the words of Paul in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, Paul opens with a question, what shall we say then? To all that we've considered to this point, to the fact that we've been justified freely by his grace, that where sin abounds under the law, grace has superabounded through the gospel, Paul asks the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But Paul continues with an answer. All of that theology, obviously in Paul's mind, absolutely not, verse 2, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, how is it that we have died to sin? We have died to sin in our union with Jesus Christ. And it's that union with Christ that is pictured or illustrated in our baptism. So Paul makes his point now with an explanation relying upon the symbolism of baptism. Verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? As many of us as were baptized or immersed into Christ Jesus. Now Paul certainly has in mind that we were placed into union with Christ Jesus. Baptized by the Spirit into union with Christ. Into Christ. Okay, But by referencing baptism, which is also a physical picture of that spiritual reality... He communicates far more than that. In other words, we simply, we can't divorce the use of the word baptism from the spiritual realities that Paul is speaking of here. We can't divorce those two things. They're connected. They're married in the text. From the new covenant ordinance, baptism overwhelmingly refers to union with Christ. And Paul is referring here to the Spirit placing us in union with Christ. It's that union with his person, it's that union with him in death that is symbolized in the ordinance. That's why we would take the word baptized in verse 3 as referring to our water baptism. If you read other commentators, in particular Presbyterian commentators or Roman Catholic commentators or Lutheran commentators, that's not what that word is referring to. It's referring to simply us being placed in a union with Jesus Christ. But you can see why Paul here is not simply referring, we're about to see more, but why Paul is not simply referring here to immersion, but he's referring to our baptism, the ordinance of baptism. Baptism, that baptism being a symbol of our immersion into union with Jesus Christ. And our own baptism here is being ace. We talked about that word last week. Not into, but with reference to a baptism with reference to our union with Jesus Christ, a baptism with reference to his death. 
Just as immersion beneath the waters of baptism is a picture of our union with Jesus Christ as we put Christ on, so immersion beneath the waters of baptism represents our union with Jesus Christ in his death and our union with Jesus Christ in his burial. That substitutionary death is such that when Christ himself died in our place and on our behalf, he not only died for our sins, taking our sins upon himself, but he also died to sin once for all. That's verse 10. In that, he broke the dominion of sin. He broke the rule of sin, the power of sin over us when he died to sin for all of us, subjecting himself to the dominion of our own sins, which were imputed to him, and then rising from the grave in victory over sin and death. In his resurrection, he conquered the dominion of sin and death over himself, and he conquered the dominion and sin of sin and death over all of us who would be united to him through faith, such that when he died to sin, we died to sin in our union with him through faith. That's the language of our text down. So as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus, we're also baptized into his death. All that pictured in the waters of baptism. In other words, we also died to sin. We died to sin in him. We are freed then from sin's penalty through the sacrificial death of the son. Now freed from sin's power. Freed from sin's dominion through the sacrificial death of the son. Now free in him to walk in newness of life. And that gets at Paul's point. We can't live any longer in sin. We've been freed from bondage to sin to walk in newness of life. No longer a slave under the mastery of sin. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Absurd. Absurd. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now Paul now continues his explanation with verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul continues his explanation. Therefore, therefore, We were buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. What we see now in verse four, I think is the reason why Paul calls on the, the rich symbolism of our own baptism in order to make his point. Immersion doesn't make the point that Paul's trying to make fully, but the picture, the illustration, the analogy of our baptism makes his point. He isn't only referring here to the immersion of a believer into union with Christ in verse three, and the ordinance of baptism doesn't only signify our union with Christ in his death, but baptism also beautifully depicts the union of the believer to Christ in his death in his burial, and in his resurrection. See, the scope, the scope of the symbolism of our baptism goes far beyond just our union with Christ in his death, but extends now also to his burial, to his resurrection in particular. So when we go under the waters of our baptism, we're gonna have a baptism service here soon, uh, and we're going to see genuine believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and dwelt by his spirit, loved by the Lord. We're gonna see them baptized Uh, in the waters of baptism. We're going to see them obey the Lord by obeying the Lord's ordinance of water baptism. And when a believer, when you and I, when we were baptized, when we went under the waters of baptism, it's a picture, isn't it, of our own death. 
It's a picture of our own burial, our own death, our own burial, but that in union with Jesus Christ. It is to illustrate or picture your death, your burial, as you are in union with Jesus Christ in his own death and in his own burial. And when we were raised up uh, again from the waters of baptism, it's a picture of our own resurrection. The first resurrection, as it, will, as you, as it were, a picture of resurrection. A resurrection that takes place in union with Jesus Christ himself, who was raised for our justification. And baptism then, in those pictures, baptism becomes a, a powerful physical picture, a powerful analogy or demonstration of what has already taken place in the heart of a true believer spiritually. It becomes a symbol, or an illustration, if you will, of an inward reality, such that that. This expanded illustration of the believer's union with Christ becomes a powerful illustration, but not only an illustration, a powerful reminder of why the one who has placed his faith in Jesus Christ cannot continue to live a life of sin. Immersion, in the way that, for example, a Presbyterian commentator might conceive of it, is simply an immersion into Jesus Christ or into his death. Water baptism signifies not only our union with Jesus Christ in his death, but our burial with him and our ultimate resurrection to new life in him. All pictured by the waters of baptism. Beyond freeing us from the dominion or the power of sin in union with Jesus Christ through his death, baptism's symbolism also extends to burial and to resurrection. Now consider with me how the imagery of our water baptism extends to burial, right? Verse four, we were buried with him. We were buried with him as seen through the symbolism of baptism with reference to his death. In other words, we were buried in union with him also. Not just that we have died in union with him, but we were buried in union with him. The words we were buried with, those words all translate a single Greek word. And that very rare word, only used twice in the New Testament, literally refers to someone being buried in someone else's tomb. Buried in someone else's grave. So our union with Jesus Christ, for those who have placed their faith in him, it's as though you were put into his grave. <laughs> the, you know, the, the, the imagery, the symbolism of that is beautiful, isn't it? In union with Jesus Christ, you were put into his tomb, so to speak. You share the same tomb with him, as it were. One commentator refers to this burial with him in death as being conveyed into another state or another realm as Jesus Christ was conveyed. The realm of death and the grave. Burial think with me, is the seal that finalizes or affirms the reality of that transfer, transition. When we go to a funeral service, for example, we stand at the grave, and we stand at the graveside, and we watch as the casket is covered over with dirt, don't we? And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, there's a certain finality to all of that. If you've ever been to the funeral of a lost person, and you sat there at the graveside and watched that hole filled up with dirt. There's a sense of finality. There's a sense of 
terminus, isn't there, in that, uh, a conclusion of the matter, so to speak, that frankly is terrifying. And then what happens? We all leave and we leave that one behind in the earth. There's a finality to it. It's conclusive evidence, terminal evidence, that death has taken him. Death has taken him. It's appointed for men to die once and then the judgment. There's a conclusiveness to it, isn't there? Martin Lloyd-Jones. As the man whom you bury has finished with the life of this world, so the Lord Jesus Christ, by being buried himself, was stating that the relationship to sin in this world that he had assumed for the purposes of our salvation no longer obtained. He moved out altogether from the realm and reign and the territory of sin. He did that for our redemption. But it's in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ that we ourselves have been buried and not just buried, buried with him. Buried with him in his own tomb, as it were. So that like him, we also move on and move out. Like him, in his death to sin, we too have moved out altogether from the realm and from the reign of sin. Being buried with him in the same way that it speaks of finality to that one apart from the Lord Jesus Christ and his eternal destiny sealed. Being buried with him definitively or conclusively marks the end of this life under the dominion of sin for us. As terminal and as final as the former was, it is just as final, just as terminal, just as conclusive evidence that we have also died to the realm of sin in him. It is conclusive evidence that with Christ, we have died to the world, died to the flesh, died to the devil. But all that in union with Jesus Christ. In union with Jesus Christ, we don't stand there at the graveside looking at that open hole in the ground with a sense of finality. We stand at the graveside looking into that open hole as a doorway. And as surely as we are raised through the waters of baptism that symbolize our death in Christ, we have been raised in him to walk in newness of life. And it's just as certain that we'll be raised with him in the last day. Verse four, we were buried with him in baptism, through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For those in union with Jesus Christ through faith, death doesn't claim you. Death doesn't claim you. Who claims you? God claims you. God has claim over your life. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory, right? God claims our life to himself through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He claimed your life to himself when he took his own son's life at the cross in your place. And the reality the reality of that union with Jesus Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection is pictured beautifully in the waters of baptism. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. God, verse 4, he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. God manifests his glory to us in a multitude of ways, doesn't he? God manifests his glory in many ways. He manifests his glory in mercy by forgiving us of all of our sin. Glory be to God, right? He manifests his glory 
in pouring out his grace upon us, declaring us righteous in Jesus Christ. Here, God's glory, verse 4, refers to the outworking of his power. And it's a power which is glorious. He manifests his glory in awesome power by raising Christ from the dead. So to say that he was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father is synonymous with saying that he was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father. He manifests his glory in that same power by calling you and I from death to walk in newness of life. Listen to Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to verse 19. Paul speaks there of the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe. The exceeding greatness of his power, which is according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. In in other words, think about what Paul's saying there. The same power that works in you who believe is the same power, the exceedingly great power that God worked when he raised Christ from the dead. And that resurrection power is at work in you who believe. Why? Because you have been united with Jesus Christ in his resurrection. You've been united with him. And the same power now that that raised Christ from the dead now works in you who have put your faith in him. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Listen. And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him, in union with him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism. Same picture, isn't it? In which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. That's interesting. He does not say raised with him in baptism. That could be symbolic language, but it's specifically raised with him through faith. Being united to Jesus Christ is a blessing conferred upon us through faith in Jesus Christ. Being buried with Christ in his death is a blessing, a privilege conveyed upon us, conferred upon us through faith in Jesus Christ. And being raised with Jesus Christ is a blessing, a privilege conferred upon those who put their faith in Jesus Christ such that we are raised with him through faith in the working of God, who in glorious power raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The exceeding greatness of God's power, not only displayed in a believer's death to sin, but the exceeding greatness of God's power displayed toward us who believe in that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we should now walk in newness of life. If you remember, I believe it was in part one, we spoke about the, the divorce that has taken place in our day and age of the grace of God poured out on us in Jesus Christ from the power, the wonder-working power of that grace to transform the life of a sinner. And everyone wants to claim for themselves a huge presumption, claim for themselves that grace which forgives us of all our sins, they turn then and deny that that grace has any power to transform a life or that that grace has any power to teach us to deny ungodly lusts, that that grace has any power whatsoever to cause us to walk in newness of life. And here we see it in Colossians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 1, the very same exceedingly great 
power with which God raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the very same exceedingly great power that works in you who believe that we should walk in newness of life. Death to sin is not all that union with Christ entails, do you see? Death to sin is not all that union with Christ entails. It entails a resurrection to new life. A resurrection to new life. It's not all that baptism symbolizes. Death to sin is not all that baptism symbolizes. Union with Jesus Christ involves death to sin, burial with Christ, and a resurrection to new life. Not simply a death to the world, the flesh, and the devil, but also a resurrection to, new, to a new life of worship. Doesn't it? To a new life of love. To a new life of joy, gratitude, hope, faith, devotion, service, right? Consider the scope of that union. Verse 10, the death that Christ died, he died to sin once for all. Verse 10. Verse 11, so having died to sin in him, in union with him, we must consider ourselves then dead indeed to sin. Verse 13, so we must no longer present our members as instruments of unrighteousness. Do you see the union and the implications of that union? Is that all that our union entails? Absolutely not. Not. No, verse 10, the life that Christ now lives, he lives to God. Verse 11, so having been raised in union with Christ, to newness of life in him, we must now consider ourselves as alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And verse 13, we should now present our members as instruments of righteousness to God. See, union not only are merely conveying death to sin in Jesus Christ and our union with him, but life to God, newness of life, resurrection life. That's what Paul means here by newness of life. Note that new life, is the purpose of our union with Christ. In verse four, we were united with Christ in his death so that, or for the purpose that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. It's for the purpose that, you see, we also should walk in newness of life. That ultimate purpose, not clearly seen in a mere reference to our union with Christ in his death or immersion into Christ, but beautifully portrayed, beautifully illustrated in the new covenant ordinance of baptism. When the believer, after having been plunged under the water, united to Christ, buried with Christ, is raised to walk in newness of life. In the likeness of his resurrection, as Paul will say. Such that when we see the believer buried with Christ through the waters of baptism into death, we see the believer then raised from the water, symbolizing that we now walk in resurrection life, as it were. It's new in the sense that it isn't new to our experience, right? Uh, if you were once in sin, now having been set free from sin, now having been forgiven of all your sin, uh, it's new. It's a new life, new affections, new heart, new mind, new thoughts, new imaginations, new desires, new longings, right? New joys, new hopes, new in our experience as fallen sinners, new 
in the sense that we no longer, no longer walk according to the course of this world. We no longer walk according to the prince of the power of the air. We no longer walk according to the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once used to conduct ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath just like the rest. It's no longer, no longer defines us, right? But rather new in the sense that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the use of that word walk? It's a reference to our conduct, reference to how we live our life. That we should walk in them in the power of God, the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, Paul says, which is according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. That power brother, sister, is available to you through faith. Why doesn't Paul say that? Romans chapter five, verse one. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ and we have access by faith into that justifying grace in which we stand. That power that works in you who believe. It's through that power that you'll conquer, right? through the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those spiritual blessings that Christ has won applied to the believer through faith. Not in your own strength, not in your own power. It's as new. This resurrection life is new in the sense of walking according to the Spirit, not walking according to the flesh, united to Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. Let me ask you, incidentally, if Paul here attaches the meaning of the ordinance of baptism to these spiritual realities, right? If he's attaching the ordinance of baptism to these spiritual realities, and our baptism then is meant to illustrate these life-changing truths, then what is the only mode of baptism that properly illustrates that meaning? What's the only appropriate mode? full immersion of a believer under the water. Do you see? The only appropriate mode that would signify or symbolize those spiritual realities. Sprinkling doesn't do it. Do you see? Doesn't do it. Who, if those spiritual blessings are conveyed through our union with Jesus Christ and baptism symbolizes or signifies signifies those spiritual blessings conferred upon the one who has put faith in Jesus Christ, then who are the only recipients, the only appropriate or biblical recipients of water baptism? Believers. Believers. It's simply not possible to affirm these truths or to confer these benefits apart from faith, which means that it's impossible for us to biblically baptize infants. Do you see? These things are not minor things. These are crucially, critically important things. It has bearing on your understanding of union, your understanding of the Christian life, and how you live the Christian life, how you view conversion. We're going to see that as we work through chapter 6, into chapter 7, into chapter 8. becomes critically important to our understanding of the Christian life. Union with Jesus Christ is critical, not only to understanding this text, but understanding how we're to live, how we're to worship, how we're to serve, how we're to love, to living the Christian life. 
And baptism is a beautiful illustration of that union. Union with him, Jesus Christ, in his death, burial, and resurrection. The obvious implication of the text is that because Jesus Christ died to sin, the believer, through faith, has died to sin in union with Jesus Christ for the purpose that the believer now may be raised in union with him, alive indeed to God, to live in the newness of a resurrection life. That's the purpose. How could anyone possibly imagine that a Christian could continue to live in a lifestyle of sin? Simply impossible. The thought is unthinkable. It's absurd, Paul would say. And all the rich theological truth of that tremendous spiritual reality is even pictured in something as simple as elementary, you might say, as being of those first things. It's something as simple as our water baptism, right? All of those glorious spiritual blessings pictured in something we did at the very start of our Christian lives. Our own baptism then should be a reminder to us that we shall not that we cannot, we must not continue in sin any longer. Our own baptism, remembrance of those spiritual truths should be a fuel that fires the war with sin. Right? Wage holy warfare. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember your baptism. Remember the spirit. Remember the power that now works in you mightily. May our baptism be a reminder of all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, we rejoice in you in these glorious spiritual truths, these realities that have been given to us through the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ who himself took our sins upon him on the cross and not only died for our sins, but died for us to sin once and for all. That we, in our union with him, have died to sin in him also. And now, having died to sin, having, having died in him to the dominion of sin, to the power of sin, the rule and reign of sin, the mastery of sin, having died to our slavery to sin, we can indeed reckon ourselves dead to sin and walk uh, through the power of your spirit, through that power that works mightily in us, the same power with which you raised Christ from the dead, we can walk in newness of life. Help us, Lord, by faith, to lay hold of that for which you laid hold of us. Help us to lay hold of that power, that grace through faith to your glory that we might live for you in light of these truths, that it might inform our conduct, inform our obedience, that it might inform our worship, our love, our devotion, our hope, our joy, or that we would keep our eyes fixed on Jesus Christ and not on the things of this world, uh, knowing that our citizenship is in heaven and we seek a heavenly country. Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to apply this text, heart, mind, and soul. Uh, help us to apply this text, live for you with uh, our diligence, with strength, with fervor, uh, for your glory and for the sake of our great bridegroom. Uh, work these things in our heart and mind for your glory, for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.